Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 174. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to discuss 1997's Jungle to Jungle, here on Monoreal Radio's Jungle January. Let me ask you a question. Jungle to Jungle, all right? This is like peak Tim Allen, 1997. Sam Huntington is just coming onto the scene as a child actor. Now, was this a movie that you were like all over from its release or was this something that like you kind of discovered later on was this maybe like one of those hidden gems on disney plus no this was a staple in my house uh we saw this in theaters as a family and this is probably one of my favorite memories of going to the movies with my parents other than when my dad took me to see rescuers down under this is such a core memory with him because I have never seen him laugh so hard as when the... Well, I don't want to spoil it just yet for those who haven't seen it. We are going to spoil it later on in the review. But I just remember my dad laughing for from about halfway through the end at this one thing that happened. And I've just never heard him laugh so hard. Uh, And... I have probably said the phrase nice poochie poochie more times than you would be comfortable with. Um, yeah, I, yeah, that's just not (laughs) something that typically you expect to hear from your life partner. Uh, but yeah, this was one for us that, so we didn't see it in the movie theaters. This was a movie that we were at, of all places, Costco with my mom. My grandmother was with us and it was one of those like grandma wants to spoil the kids so she let us pick out a VHS, but there was literally nothing there that we had seen before, but we knew of this. Obviously, we knew this film had existed, and we just never saw it in theaters. And, and Tim Allen was huge in your household. Oh, my God. Yeah, we worshipped Tim Allen. So this was, and so it's kind of weird that we didn't see it in theaters, but yeah. this was one that we grabbed and just, spoiler alert, wore the VHS out. So I think the big question is, your father's doubled over in a movie theater. I broke a VHS tape. The question is, from 1997 to now, does this film hold up? This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co., and make sure you're checking back on Mondays for new drops. Commodities broker Michael Cromwell is engaged to his fiancée, Charlotte, But before he can marry her, he must first head to Venezuela to have his ex-wife Patricia sign their divorce papers. When he arrives, he sees the tribe that she is living with, she's actually their doctor, and learns that together they have a son named Mimi Siku, whose existence was unbeknownst to Michael. Mimi asks Michael to take him back to New York when he becomes a man, which Michael agrees to. That night, the 13-year-old Mimi undergoes a rite of passage and is considered a man by the tribe. The chief tasks Mimi with returning with fire from the Statue of Liberty in order to someday become the next chief. A reluctant Michael returns home with Mimi and learns that his partner Richard did not sell the coffee futures that they had recently bought despite Michael telling him to and that the stock is now in the tank, which they would have to pay their 
brokerage back for um, at a cost of $1 million. So this is a massive loss that neither one of them can afford. Meanwhile, Mimi has difficulties adjusting to Charlotte as well as the ways of the Western world and grows frustrated with Michael, who keeps blowing him off when he asks about their trip to the Statue of Liberty because Michael is just trying to smooth things over with Charlotte and at work. Meanwhile, Richard, against Michael's wishes, sells the coffee futures to the Russian mafia as a way of uh, bailing them out. Michael takes Mimi to stay with Richard's family to give himself and Charlotte some breathing room, and Mimi becomes romantically involved with Richard's daughter, Karen, much to his dismay. Meanwhile, the coffee futures continue to fall, so Michael and Richard buy them back, but when the stocks skyrocket, the Russians believe that the two tried to swindle them, and they head to Richard's home. Richard and his family are taken captive, but Michael and Mimi fight the mobsters off and save the family. Upon going to the Statue of Liberty, Mimi tells tells Michael that he wishes to return to the tribe. Michael sends him back with a lighter of the Statue of Liberty when you press the back, the torch lights, so Mimi does get to go back to the chief with fire from the Statue of Liberty, as well as a satellite phone so that they can keep in touch. Michael eventually breaks it off with Charlotte as well as his job. Uh, he and Richard's family head to the tribe. Karen and Mimi Siku are reunited, and Michael has his own rite of passage within a tribe where he is now considered to be a man. All right. Um, let's go all the way back to the beginning here. This movie, the opening credits are truly incredible. I think the cinematography in that opening scene where Mimi is on that canoe and he's climbing that mountain, I think it's some of the best cinematography, believe it or not, that we have seen in quite some time. It's just breathtaking. Yeah, and it's something that I feel like modern audiences don't necessarily appreciate because, number one, things like that are replaced with CGI now. But this is what a big budget film used to be is where you would go to a location like this and do one of these really large scale scenes. In this case, uh, they shot on location in Venezuela to um, use that as the setting for what I think is the fictitious village where Mimi Siku lives. Right. Uh, conceptually, to me, this setup is just brilliant. This is actually a remake of a French film. Uh, but just the idea of the jungle to jungle and you're going from this small island to the concrete jungle and the way that that's balanced throughout these opening credits is brilliant. I loved And even as a kid, well, I was 11 when the movie came out. So I mean, I mean, I was, I'm not sitting here telling you I was wise beyond my years, but I think. By no, the, you were. You were like one of those smart alecky kids. I was 12 going on 40. But I think as as an 11 year old, you kind of do pick up on symbolism in movies. For sure. And what I loved and I still do. And I actually had forgotten about it until we sat to watch this is after Mimi climbs the mountain and he stands at the mountain's edge and he screams in that victory that he made it up the mountain, it fades into people screaming and yelling on the Wall Street floor. I loved it as a kid. I knew exactly what they were doing, and it just holds up as an adult. And something you don't realize, you know, your first couple of times watching this movie, it's kind of like, why is he scaling this mountain? Just because he can. 
uh, when we find out that he's about to become a man in his tribe, at, which at 13 years old is customary. Right. I think this is, you know, symbolically him being ready to take that next step. Uh, so it's not as random as it may seem your first or second time viewing this. Uh, but yes, it is perfectly juxtaposed against going right into Wall Street. I love that once Tim Allen's character gets to the island, the boat driver tells him Lipu Lipu, so nice they named it twice, which is also such a great juxtaposition against New York, New York. I have been fighting the urge to say Lapu Lapu, by the way, <laughs> since we came on. Um, yeah, it, we're really, you know what the thing is? So I, I said before that I kind of forgot that Mimi Siku screams and it fades into you know, trading on the Wall Street floor. I'm just putting this out here now. I must have watched this movie far more than I remember watching it. Because when we sat... Because I probably have not watched this in 20 years. It's been at least 20 years since I've watched it. And so I, I'm I'm, I, I'm watching... Before we even sit, I'm like, I don't even remember how this movie ends. I was like, I don't know if I ever made it to the end of this movie because there were there was one or two VHSs, admittedly, and I, I kind of hate to say it now that my grandparents bought me that I never made it more than the halfway point. And I was like, was this one of those movies? Because I just couldn't remember how it ended. And like within the first three minutes of this movie, I was saying the lines along with the film. I was laughing before punchlines. I must have seen this movie so much more than I remembered. And as it started coming back to me, it was just so... It was funnier and funnier with every line that came out. That's what I'm saying. I don't think you'd expect this to be a very quotable movie, but my family would quote it all the time like you would Home Alone or something. Yeah, I, we, my brother and I would say, I guess that's the thing, like, a movie like Home Alone, The Jungle Book, these were movies that we watched as a family, I, and The Santa Claus, same thing. My family never sat to watch this movie. This would be like me and my brother in the basement with the VCR, and it would just be us. I'm not talking about, like, movies that you watch with your family, though. I'm talking about, like, these cultural touchstones i think everybody can quote home alone no matter if you grew up with it or you watch it now or were recently introduced to it to me that is a cultural icon and we would quote this film the same way i think every family can quote home alone you wouldn't think this is a quotable film but we just treated it like that because that is how much we watched it yeah um so tim allen you, he leaves Manhattan, right? Michael. Michael. Is his name in the film. He leaves Manhattan. He leaves Richard behind. Um, and Richard is not on board with these coffee futures that Michael bought. But Michael says, I got a hunch. It's going to take off. So, like, they do a good job of planting, really, the biggest piece of drama. It's, it's in the first scene that Michael is in. It, it's, it's from the jump. They're really very smart about it because you know that is a key point, a key plot point, even as a kid watching this. And obviously you see that unfold as the subplot where, uh, you know, they go to the to the mob and, and right. 
you know, obviously later that comes back to bite them. But it is very cleverly done. And there's so much more to pay attention to when you're watching as an adult because you're, you know, they, they make it easily digestible for a kid to understand. But as an adult, you understand it on a whole nother level and you don't realize what a common, what a thread it is throughout the film. Yeah. And I think to touch on what, on, on that point, I think that this movie, if you, if you watched it when it came out, I think this more than most movies, and I think it does have to do with Tim Allen and his sense of humor. And I do think he probably ad-libbed a lot of this. This movie tends to grow up very well with the viewer because you're right. You understand it enough as a kid. There's enough belly laughs as a kid because of the trouble that Mimi Siku gets into. I mean, his name alone, and we'll get to all that in a minute. You know, what his name translate to, it's, it's funny enough as a kid, but as an adult, the comedy hits harder, the subplots hit harder, and I think that these become far more complex characters, especially that that pull and that push with this awkward father-son relationship with Charlotte, with with trying to balance work. Like, this just, it, it just ages so well. I couldn't agree more because one of the things that stood out to me so much from the jump that was different watching it this time around was the divorce yeah you know as a kid again easily digestible he's got to go divorce his estranged wife so that he can get remarried okay fine and then she drops this bomb on him that he's had a kid that he's never even met before and I think as a child watching this you're so in the POV of Michael, who's just learning this news and and how could you withhold that information from him? And also from this 13-year-old kid who's never met his father. Um, But one of the things that was sort of different for me now is really tuning into how the marriage fell apart because... It, they they do the exposition so brilliantly. It's chaotic. He's rolling up on the beach in his suit uh, because his wife was supposed to meet him on the bigger island and she doesn't come. And obviously this is why, because she baits him into coming and meeting Mimi Siku. Right. Uh, but then he's trying to set up his laptop, which... As early as 1997, you could have an internet connection, but I think if you've not seen this movie, definitely go watch it for some insight as to how rudimentary the setup was. Yes. But there's so much happening. It's very chaotic, and it starts to unfold when they start pointing the finger at each other as to who was to blame. And right. she felt neglected, and he's sitting there going, you know, you left me to go live with the village people. (laughs) Yeah, what a great line. And there's just such a deeper understanding of how, you know, we've seen him being very career-oriented because he can't, he just touched down, he can't wait to set up his laptop, but I found myself not villainizing his wife the way I did as a child for just up and leaving him because you see that, she wasn't happy in the marriage and she wanted to put her own career first. And this is what's making her happy. Uh, And that's something, you know, you're not going to understand necessarily as an 11 year old watching this because there's so much else going on. Yeah. You're right. You're, you're completely correct. And the way that they flesh it out is brilliant. But these lines, the village people, 
Nightmare on Bodega Street. You know, the things, Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates of the Caribbean. And even better, when he comes up on land and he's trying to tell them, Patricia, Patricia, because he doesn't know she goes by Palicu now. And he's trying to explain her and he's like, she looks like me, but, but full figured. And I remember laughing at that kind of as a kid just because of how Tim Allen said the line. As I got a little bit older and I understood what Tim Allen was saying, it got funnier and funnier. This time around, I was in stitches, completely in stitches. Do and I have th- to wonder if it was ad lib. I was just going to ask you that if you think it was. I, I'd be willing to bet that it was. I think that was ad libbed. And I think that when they go and they see that the the pig is having a litter and he I'm not I'm, I'm just going to say he looks at somebody in the room and congratulates them. It, I mean, it's a good laugh, but i that's a joke I don't think you see in a Disney film if it came out this year. Absolutely not. But again, I think that was just Tim Allen's humor, and I, I think that was ad-lib too. I think a lot of his really good lines in this movie are ad-lib. Like, I, I think if you really like his jokes and his delivery in The Santa Claus, in the first one, that kind of snark and quick wit, you get that here. It's the same exact thing. For sure. Like in Santa Claus, one of my favorite lines, Santa's been watching his saturated fats. Is it funny on its own? Yeah, kind of. But the delivery is everything. And that's what you get here is that classic Tim Allen, which I think also is is just so great against Martin Short, which we've discussed the Santa Claus 3. We didn't love that one. Uh, but these two on screen together are brilliant, and we're gonna we're gonna get into that as the film goes on. Uh, one thing that has held for me when I was a kid to now is that Paliku has some nerve being mad at him when she didn't meet him like she was supposed to. She withheld this information about the sun, and you're gonna get mad that he flew all this way and he still has to work. And he can't give you two seconds. And then you drop this news on him when you don't even have his full attention and get mad at him for not listening to you. Yeah. Are you kidding? Yeah. It's, um, she's not the most sympathetic of characters. Um, we'll discuss characters in a little while here. We'll break them down one by one. But um, if, if, I ha- if the movie has any flaw, I think that's probably the biggest, is that in theory... What she's saying is not wrong when it comes to, you know, and I'm burying the lead here a little bit. Now I'm jumping ahead. But things like Mimi wanted you here on this important day. He wanted his father here. You break the first promise you ever made to him. You embarrass him in front of the tribe. He did all of these things. But the thing is, like, that should be such a heartfelt moment where you feel so bad for her for trying to do the right thing. But you can't erase the fact that for the last 13 years, she did everything but the right thing. Right. And they do try to cover it with a throwaway line of, I must have started a thousand letters. I'm sorry I haven't told you. Uh, But it's just not enough. And I think part of that is that this falls victim to a 90s trope of the dumb husband, where it's always like... The man is the head of the household, but the wife is the neck, and she's going to swing it any way she wants to. Right. And 
she's in the wrong here. She just is. So it's very hard to see past that when they're just trying to pigeonhole it into something that we were very used to seeing in sitcoms. Right. And even like the we're divorced and I'm getting married and I have to get my papers signed in order to get married. We've been separated for years. We're divorced, but we never signed the papers. This We saw the same storyline a year prior in Twister. Yes. Twister is set up the same exact way, and that movie came out in 1996. We have referenced some obscure films on this podcast, but wow, when you bring up Twister, I don't know that you're doing something right. Uh, no. Twister is a classic 90s disaster movie, and I love it. This film does put a fresh spin on it, though, I think, because they do it in Twister. They do it in Sweet Home Alabama, the Reese Witherspoon rom-com yeah, where yeah, she's yeah. tried to bury her past. Uh, to me, this is pretty brilliant. Like, why don't you have your divorce paperwork signed? Well, she's been on the most remote island. I can't get to her. You know, you're just, you're not really expecting it. And I, I'm only thinking about this as we're talking through it now. I wonder if it was worth getting that amazing shot of Mimi Siku climbing the mountain first, because you've already established the setting. If we started with Michael instead of starting on wall street, and I don't know that I would have given up that brilliant dissolve in it that you were talking yeah. about. It would have, packed a lot more of a punch if we're with Michael and Charlotte first seeing their, you know, New York wealthy life and they're both career obsessed and they have these like high profile jobs. And then you find out that, you know, this is the reason he hasn't been able to cut the tie. It it might have packed a bit more of a punch, but again, not not worth sacrificing those opening credits because they're amazing. Right. Now after he spent a little bit of time on the island, not even a lot of time, just a little bit of time, right as Patricia or Paliku is explaining to him that they have a child, this is when he is on that laptop with the little satellite. Hello, you. Hello, you. And he's trying to, he thinks he made the coffee sale because the futures have gone up. And he thinks he did it. And you see confirmed transaction with an exclamation point. I mean, I guess you could have done it as a question mark because then it kind of like as the viewer, you know that you're left with a question. When you see confirm transaction with an exclamation point, you're thinking that means you've confirmed the transaction and that he's just made a lot of money. I would have tweaked that a little bit, but I guess upon further viewing, that's Richard. Like that's that's their version of having Richard yell at Michael through the computer. But I would have tweaked that a little bit. Right. I mean... And this is, it's the brilliance of that scene, though, is he's so distracted, even because, you know, when he reunites with Richard later, Richard yells at him for 15 years, it's been confirmed, yes, and then I do it. Um, I think that's, that is a success of this film, because there's so much going on, he would easily forget to do one of these mundane steps that he's very much accustomed to. I don't even know if that was like a chat where Richard was saying to him, are you sure? I, I think it's just like a a safety that he has to, to click through. Right, right. So then we meet 
Mimisiku. And this, for whatever reason, this is the one thing that stuck with me the whole time was when she tells Michael that the name Mimisiku translates to cat piss. And I laughed as a kid, but as a kid, like as a kid, and I think this is why it was so memorable for me. It was one of the first times in a Disney film that I had heard what you would consider to be a, you know, a quote unquote bad word. Um, and obviously it, it, it's just funny to hear them say that. It's funny that that's the name that he picked. I laugh now, but I laugh differently. I think like when I was 11, it was like a nervous laughter. Like, oh, Disney said cat piss in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely funny as a kid. I feel like I overthink that now because it's like when he chose the name, did he even know English? Does he even understand what it translates to? You know? Well, Patricia defends it as he was six years old. It was a territorial thing. Right. And the funny thing about it, though, too, is that we later learn that they eat cats. <laughs> yeah, like Alf. Yes. <laughs> um, I think the whole when I'm a man promise is yes. such a great setup. Um, I have that same exact note. It is so good. Really, the whole pacing here is just well done because... We're in Michael's POV. He's trying to get used to the fact that he even has a kid and a fully grown kid at that. And he's not just trying to adjust to this new person in his life, but he's also literally just trying to survive the elements because he's not used to this world around him. He's in a suit. He's he's not prepared to be out on the beach. He's not prepared to spend the night in the bachelor hut the with bachelors. the rest of them. <laughs> um, and at first he thinks there's a language barrier. So now he's trying to, he has to try to get to know his son who he can't even speak to. And then once you get past that, you see him start to accept it a little bit. Now he's, he's trying. He's definitely extending the olive branch. He, he immediately, and that is something that I will applaud the film for and applaud the character for is that he's, you know, basically in five minutes willing to overlook what Patricia has done for the greater good of the kid. Uh, so she sends them out on this boat ride. Again, she looks so smug, like, Oh, look at, look at what I did. I orchestrated this yeah, and I now know. they're bonding and he can't even talk to him yet. And then, you know, it's revealed that Mimi Siku has understood everything that he said so far. And he sees that he's trying to bond. Uh, and now they have to survive together outside of the village. So, it's nice to see that they're starting to lean on each other. And now he he makes the offer to, when Mimi Siku was a man, take him to New York City. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, okay, you know, that's that's cool. He just found out about this person and, and you know, he's, he's going to keep him in his life. That's great. And... Well, it's a half-hearted promise. Exactly. But that sets up this brilliant blindside. Yeah. Yeah, because the whole time we're all thinking the same thing. It's like, well, he's a child, so he's not yet a man. So when you get this rite of passage scene uh, when they tell him that he is a man, and it's like over the head of Michael when Patricia tells him Mimi Siku is now a man. They're acknowledging him as a man after he grabs onto the flaming stick and he burns his hand and he puts the lotion on it and whatever. 
and then they give him this task. Michael's just like, oh, that's great. That's fun. Um, not realizing that that means that, like, he has to go to Manhattan with you, like, tomorrow. It's also a great character moment because I think for the most part, other than being a little work-obsessed, Michael is a likable character, but it speaks volumes that he's not even acknowledging what this tribe's customs are. And he's not even willing to accept that at first. It's just like, no, when you're 18, I'll take you because I have this whole other life and you're not fitting into my plan right now. And this is where he immediately, any effort that he has put forth, he regresses now. Right. Um, it's, it, it's definitely, you get that, like, you get that pit in your stomach because you feel bad for Mimi Siku because Patricia says this is the most important day of his life. You broke the, I mentioned it before what her lines are. And like, with her, it's sort of crocodile tears, but, but you feel bad for him, especially because I forgot that she dragged him out to the island, but it was Mimi Siku who wanted him there. Right. Because they plant, she says, he wanted you here to witness this. Right. And that's why she doesn't show up because she knew if she had simply just asked, even to get this paperwork signed, it would not have been enough for him to go. Yeah. So it's it's a really great scene because you just get this roller coaster of emotions and you're getting pulled in so many different directions because you you still, here's the thing, and we haven't said this yet. You feel bad for Michael. Like, he's self-absorbed. He's completely self-absorbed. But could you imagine being an adult and finding out that you have a child that you never knew existed? And clearly you, ha- you have been in touch with your ex-wife. Uh, you knew where to find her. This has never come up before. So there's this roller coaster of emotion where you feel so bad for him and for all of the reasons that you feel bad for him and you feel his pain and you you side with his frustration, it's the same reason why you feel bad for Mimi Siku because he you it's not his fault that any of this happened. So I think that's part of the brilliance of this is there's a wedge between the two of them. You understand the wedge from both perspectives and you sympathize with both parties. For sure. I mean, it's easy to sympathize with Mimisiku because you never want to disappoint a child or, well, in this case, a man. Um, But it does such a great job of flipping back and forth because, again, I'm getting annoyed with Paliku because... She's mad at Michael, who had no idea what he was agreeing to. You've duped him in every sense of the word. Yeah. Several times. Yeah. Yeah. But it flips immediately back on him because now he's not willing to uphold his end of the bargain. Right. It's clearly and, and solely because he misunderstood what the assignment was because he thought that an adult meant the age of 18 because that's what it is in at least in the United States, you know, in most Western culture, you're 18, you're an adult. The brilliance of it, too, is that this is, for this film, a relatively heavy scene. Yeah. And now, smash cut to, you've got a kid in a loincloth on the plane, and he's peeing on the exit door. You don't actually see it. The flight attendant comes and tells Michael that that's what's going on. So, obviously, it works out. Mimi Siku goes with him. Uh but it, it's such a great 
balance of, of tone where you go from serious to a very humorous scenario. And what I love most from this point moving forward, now Tim Allen has just been one liner after one liner, basically since he came onto the screen. But here, the two things that happen. First off, he Tim Allen is just so Tim Allen from here through the end of the film, and I'm here for it. But what I really love about this film I liked it as an as a child but I really love it as an adult and I think that's where it comes watching it as an adult like this is where you get more out of the film as you grow up with it you really appreciate what he's trying to do because there's this fish out of water element where he is a first-time parent to a 13 year old boy who doesn't understand the ways of American culture or, you know, really any culture other than his tribe in Venezuela. And he's trying to be the father, but he's also trying to be the friend, yet he's trying to do the disciplinarian. And there's there's this constant reminder that, um, you know, that he has to do it, that he's obligated to do it. And that becomes such a sticking point later that from here, this is where... Again, the roller coaster of emotion really goes up and down between you, the audience, and Michael. Right. And I think that comes from, I mean, obviously, the whole metaphor for this movie is to try and understand someone who is not like you, obviously. But it's not just the father and son trying to relate to each other they really are such great foils to each other. For example, when, you know, as soon as they touch back in New York, Michael's the workaholic. I got to get back to the office. Yeah. Mimi Siku's not even dressed yet. He's still running around in a loincloth. And he tells him to stay put in the office because now he's got to go clean up this mess with the coffee from while he was away. Right. Uh, So, again, trying to relate to Mimi, he says, I'm going to go fight the chief. And Mimi, thinking that this is a very serious situation, which it is, releases his spider. This big tarantula. Yeah. Yeah. A spider is downplaying a little bit. Matika. Yeah. Uh, which Michael has learned responds to yelling. So now he's in this meeting getting chewed out by. Uh, this was actually something interesting I didn't pick up on until the most recent viewing. I never got it as a kid. The reason this is such a big deal is because Michael and Richard are partners. It's not that he's getting chewed out by his boss. It's that they played with company money and they think that they're untouchable and they kind of got what was coming to them. Right. So the boss is ranting and raving and the tarantula is responding to all this noise. And now Michael has to yell back to get the tarantula's attention on him. It's so brilliant. And, you know, it's such a great... I think it's such a great first scene as far as Mimi Siku just arriving to New York. You know, they they could have gone with a cliche like he gets lost or like doesn't know what happens when you hail a cab or whatever. No, this is just I'm trying to help my father out in the most earnest way possible. Yeah, based on what his interpretation of fight the chief was. Because he said, well, you said you, you had to fight the chief. I sent... I sent, you know, the spider uh, to help you kill chief. And as only... in only a line that Tim Allen can say, he was like, no, only postal employee kills chief. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's a great moment 
because it is very funny, but it does show the stark contrast because Mimi Siku is a 13-year-old boy that lived with this tribe. He doesn't understand the humor of it. He's taking it all at face value. He also doesn't even understand really the concept of a job. You know, he lives in a tribe and they're just hunting and gathering to survive for the next day. And, you know, Mimi Siku has no concept that that is really another brilliant juxtaposition, too, because it's not just his father reporting to work. But when you're talking about so much money, he's never going to understand why this is important to Michael. Yeah, the million dollars. And then we go to Charlotte's loft where she's a fashion designer. And let me just say that Charlotte is a 90s trope. A hundred percent. Like, somebody that was so, like, work-obsessed that they are extra. Whether, I mean, and you can throw a dart at almost every 90s movie. There's always one of these characters in it. Whether it's the party planner from Blank Check, whether it's Neil from the Santa Claus, whether, again, you want to talk about Twister, whether <laughs> whether it's the new fiancé that's on the phone, she's like, I gotta go, we got cows. Like, you know, because she's just, like... So into like doesn't understand what she's driving into or doesn't care because she just has tunnel vision. There was this work obsessed side character tunnel vision thing that they did in every single 90s film to add like a lightheartedness or to kind of get like they're not a villain, but they're kind of an antagonist. And Charlotte is just another one of those many, many 90s tropes. I'm sorry if if we make it through this film with two twist or or this review with two twister references and no Ghostbusters, I think I might actually fall out of my chair. I mean, they they came out around the same time. I'm just saying, like, and I think that's kind of the point is so many of these movies they they're just they are just very much products of their time. Well, you're you're right, because the the pissy girlfriend trope is not the only 90s thing here. It's the job also, because there were I don't think people understand, like if you think fashion is big now, when there was the era of that supermodel explosion in the 90s, everything was about fashion. Like even Rachel on Friends was in the fashion world after she got out of Central Perk. It, it was just a thing. If you had a female in a film and you wanted to make them seem empowered, they had a job in fashion. It's it's just what it was. Uh, very one-dimensional, unfortunately, looking at it now. But anyway, uh, yeah, she she is just, Charlotte is just a walking trope. Uh, but this is another great scene, though, because... She's getting this bomb dropped on her. Right. It comes out later that as a couple, they have decided they do not want children. So now not only is does Michael have to drop the bomb on her. She's in the middle of filming what was a very early version of a reality show for the fashion channel. So yes. all of this is playing out while the film crew is around her and Mimi Siku sees the Statue of Liberty outside of her office and he decides to pull what they call a fay ray in one of my favorite lines of this movie yes and he just climbs out the window because to him walking out on a window ledge is nothing because we've already seen him climb a mountain this 
scene still hits me. I I don't like heights. I have said it before on this show and you have ridiculed me mercilessly that I can't even stand a whole new world in Mickey's Philharmagic when Donald falls. I just get like that pit in my stomach. So even this scene gives me the sweats. Yeah, and it, it always does, right? Um, but that doesn't even make me sweat so much as this as just a few moments later when Charlotte invites Mimi Siku to have dinner with them. It is so perfectly bad and awkward, and she's like, oh, you know, and we're going to be with the editor of Elle magazine. Very, Very major. Oh, my God. Yeah, <sighs> it's... It, it's just so cringeworthy, but it works. And here's to, to keep piggybacking on why you can't sympathize for Patricia. Again, Charlotte's not the villain. The Russian mob is the villain. She's kind of just like another cog in the plan. She's another she's an she's antagonist, a, I think is fair to say. And she, you feel more bad for her than you do for Patricia because she to your point, has this bomb dropped on her. You're not supposed to feel bad for her, but in a way that you do. Because she thinks she's got her perfect fiancé, her perfect life, her perfect career. Oh, and by the way, now we have a 13-year-old kid who just happens to be my son from my previous marriage. See, I don't feel bad for her at all, though, because in this whole scene, it's all about how Mimisiku... And, and just his very existence affects her. She's not sympathetic towards Michael at all, that he just has, he just had this dropped on him as well. In fact, she even goes so far as to blame him. And later on, she says, if I had a kid, I would know about it. Well, obviously, you're a and, woman, you carry the kid. Yeah, and, and, and he says that exact line, and it's hysterical. But her not being sympathetic in this scene actually makes it stronger, though, because Mimi going out on the ledge is not just a great metaphor for him and Michael having to learn to communicate because in Michael's mind, it's all just, I'm the parent, you have to listen to me. Right. And Mimi Siku's like, I'm a man, I don't care, I'm going to do what I want. It's such a great vehicle for Michael to realize how much he is starting to care. So I think if Charlotte was sympathetic, it wouldn't land as hard when Michael pulls him in and yells at him and this is the first time he's had to parent anyone let alone a 13 year old who's like why are you yelling at me um i don't think that it would the the entire scene would have landed as well if charlotte was like oh my god you just had this put on you and now he's climbing out of a window what are you gonna do I, I think you needed everything to be working against michael here and then when he says even though it's a funny line baboon's pants a little wet because that's what his tribe name is you know you realize that it's not just because he was out there on the ledge being scared of the height it's that he really thought something was going to happen right and then the next scene is this dinner scene where Mimi Siku thinks that they're going to eat the cat and he's telling these high profile fashion people cat fat we eat cat and they get this, the, you know, everybody gets an individual meal from Dean and DeLuca, and they go to get him, and Mimi Siku is eating the cat food out of the bowl that was meant for the house cat. And people are fainting, and they're vomiting. It Again, it's funny, and it just goes to show how detached he is from their culture, and how, you know, they, they're just not understanding 
that food is never just placed in a bowl for him. So he, he's only doing what he thinks he's supposed to do. And I love that at the same time, he manages to level all these people who think who they are. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that that's also important for Michael, too, because he's just trying. He knows this is a big deal for Charlotte. He's trying to just play the part and let her do what she needs to do for her career. But you can tell it's kind of not his thing. Uh, not to say that he's over this group of people, but they get their comeuppance by Mimi Siku just not caring who they are and just kind of going about what what he would normally do. Uh, and to paint the picture, though, if you've not seen this film, uh, this fashion editor in question, she looks like if... Well, I kind of think that Yzma looks like Susan Sarandon anyway, but this actress sort of looks like Susan Sarandon and her hair is up in the the uh, in the wrap just like Yzma's is. She yeah. is Yzma come to life. Yeah, for sure. Then the next morning, you have Mimi Siku shoots a pigeon with a bow and arrow as that nice woman in the penthouse below them is like feeding them like they're her pet birds and she's calling to them. The scene is hysterical. And then you get the infamous nice poochie poochie line. (laughs) Uh, Right. Michael leaves for work and he thinks that Mimi Siku is just going to hang in the apartment all day. Uh, And Charlotte's (laughs) there getting a late start. So, you know, they have an interesting uh, one-on-one moment there. Um, but this is another scene I feel like that is is just so well balanced because Mimi is not going to stick around. He he's he didn't disobey anyone because it was never like Michael said, now you sit there and wait until I get home from work and don't get in Charlotte's way or whatever. Mimi, again, I'm 13. I'm a man. I can just go out on my own. Uh, at 13, I can tell you I was not allowed to go to Manhattan by myself. Most that people wasn't... don't go to Manhattan by themselves at 33. <laughs> Forget 13. I did it every day at one point. Um, no, that wasn't until like later in high school when I was allowed to like go with a friend. So you have this 13-year-old kid who now is fully dressed. Uh, Michael bought him some clothes, but he ventures out on his own. And to me, it's so interesting because even though he doesn't really know his way around New York, it shows that he's perf- perfectly capable of figuring it out. Um so you're you're kind of in this POV of Michael needs to give him a little bit more credit than he's getting right now. But by the end of Mimi's day out on his own, it totally bites him. This is like the craziest day of all time because Mimi Siku climbs to the top of this Statue of Liberty. Nope. Not going to see me doing that. And then Michael gets a call to tell him that The police have his son for climbing to the top of the Statue of Liberty after Richard sets up a deal to sell the coffee shares to the Russian mob. I mean, like, it's it's so ridiculous, but it works. Um, This is just like one of the craziest things you would ever imagine. In fact, I think Mimi, if I because Mimi is with them when they go to meet the Russian mob. Yes, because they're they're getting ready to leave for the deal. The police call the office 
Michael has to leave. Because he left, he's late to meet Richard at the South Street Seaport where they go and meet the Russian mob with Mimi Siku, who's like like everybody else, like the fashion people, he's kind of telling off the Russian mob because he doesn't know, nor is he impressed with who they are. Right, and that is what gives them the out to make this deal because they've had a very trying day. Michael decides he's going to get Mimi Siku out of there, leaving Richard to his own devices to make the deal. Which is interesting because Richard was so bent out of shape that Michael didn't hit confirm from an island in the middle of nowhere where he barely has an internet connection and no way to charge his laptop. Yet, Richard was allowed to make this decision without Michael. Uh, and then before they go home for the night, um, I, I love the bonding moment that happens because even though Michael should be mad, you know, he he's sort of seeing everything through Mimi's eyes for the first time and seeing the city in a different light and they have this great dance scene in the middle of Manhattan and um Mimi's like your your village has many tribes it's just kind of a heartwarming scene to see all these cultures coming together for sure I mean the dance and the music itself is kind of like that feels very 90s especially because of the fashion but um and the dance moves that like break dancing in Central Park very 90s but I think that for sure that message still holds up. And I think that it has a sweetness to it because you have Mimi Siku, who's a child, who is still adapting to life in New York. And he, you know, but even he recognizes how many different cultures there are. He calls them tribes and how, you know, New York or really the United States, how it is a melting pot and how he just looks at it, you know, with almost like a childish wonder. It's a really, really great scene. It's a good character moment for Mimi Siku. And it's also kind of a fresh take because I think they could have done something cliche where, you know, Michael hands him really dating ourselves here, but a Walkman or maybe, maybe even an iPod at that time, like one of the early generation. No, maybe no, that was a couple no. years later. That was, that was we the were still on 2000s. CDs. Yeah. This, the, you know, maybe they had mini discs in 1997. Maybe. Uh, or that you was, had that those... was a thing, kids. That was like, it was like kind of a, a Walkman and it had this like little weird cassette, but it didn't hold as much as an iPod. So it was basically useless. Or those really early ones where it was just like one song. What was yeah. it? A hit clip? Hit, was it hit called? Clip. Yeah. Hit clip. And you literally clipped it onto yourself and it was the size of a, I don't know. What was it? Like two inches by two inches? Yeah. But it stored like one song on it and you would just hit play. It, it, it was probably like having a USB drive and you just played this one song and that well, was it. And most, I mean, our parents would say it was like a 45. But uh, most of the kids that are listening don't know what the hell a 45 is because they certainly don't know what a Walkman is. But anyway, my point was you could have done that, but we've seen it yeah. where Mimi Siku just would have been wowed by this technology that he obviously doesn't have. Uh, but I appreciate that they did it this way and the music just catches his attention just simply because it, it's more about the whole live performance of it and not just like oh wow I've never heard music like this before right and at this point this is where the movie really gets turned on its head even worse than it was before because Richard tells uh Michael that he forged his signature to get his hands on 
the documents on the shares to sell the coffee futures to the mob. And now it starts to tank. So they're like, let's just buy it back at the price they paid for it. They'll make they'll make a profit on it. And we'll just have to go back to square one. And this is where, like, the again, the roller coaster starts going because they pull that off. And then the stocks skyrocket, so the Russians think that they that they pulled a fast one on them. Then they basically say, like, we're not smug or smart enough to swindle you. And now this is where Charlotte's tropey character starts to really serve as a plot point because she's not just upset that Mimi Siku has rocked their world and ruined her dinner and, you know, it's affecting her career. Uh, she's just upset that Michael isn't spending time with her. And it's like, all right, come on, cut the guy some slack here, especially because they're talking about uh, he he wants to bring Mimi Siku back for the wedding. Right. And she basically says, like, I thought you were not in so many words. I thought you were just humoring him for the week. And she's getting annoyed that now he is going to be a bigger part of their life than she had originally thought. So. Michael sends Mimi Siku to stay with Richard's family so that he can do some damage control on his relationship. Right. No business, no Mimi. <laughs> yes. That was the line. Um, so Mimi Siku goes to Richard's family's house. They have this beautiful house. I would assume that's probably Westchester. I thought maybe Connecticut. It's definitely not supposed to serve as Long Island, I can tell you that. No. I think they just call it, like, the country. I think they just threw a blanket statement on it, like, ah, oh, it's not the city, it's the country. But that, really, that is how anything surrounding Manhattan was viewed in that time, because it wasn't as nearly as developed as it was now. Yeah. Sorry, Uniondale's not the country. Hicksville's <laughs> not the country. Exactly. Right? exactly. Huntington, Northport are not the country. Um, but yeah, it's just like, ah, the country, throw it at it. And yeah, it's either Westchester or Connecticut, but this is, it's irrelevant. Whatever it is, they, they go there thinking, okay, he'll go, he'll be with other kids. It'll be great. Never thinking that he and Karen are going to start a thing together. I mean, they're two 13 year olds. Right. And we've already seen, it, it's not only teenage raging hormones, but Mimi Siku fancies himself a ladies man. He's given pots to all the girls in the village. That's a sign of romance. You give a pot away. Um, and yeah, so that's happening. And then Richard's wife says that she's going to make fish for lunch. And it's like frozen frozen fish sticks. And Mimi Siku tries to eat one frozen, goes, that's not fish. So he goes and he takes the fish out of the fish tank, the very expensive $10,000 tropical fish out of Richard's fish tank. He starts a fire in the backyard and he roasts fish out of what he called the house pond. This is one of those. It's not just a scene, but it's just between the bad, the botched coffee deal, Mimi not being a good house guest, hitting on his daughter. Richard's unraveling is just incredible. And that is juxtaposed against Michael and the cat. Oh, my gosh. Let's just set the scene up. Mimi Siku has a blow dart. We've seen it a few times throughout the movie. If you get shot with the blow dart, it puts you to sleep. And Michael, who has already shot himself. In the foot. In the foot. Literally. With the blow dart, decides he's going to give it another try. And he shoots Charlotte's cat. 
and the Coco. cat Coco and the cat goes out in what is by far the funniest scene in the movie. And this is what I was talking about at the top of the episode where my father was just in tears. Now this is maybe about halfway, three quarters of the way through the film, but throughout the rest of the first viewing in the theater, you would just hear him keep bursting out laughing and crying because of this cat scene. I, I just, I didn't know animal paralysis hit him in the funny <laughs> bone, but it, it's been every movie since. Like if there is an animal that gets knocked out, like he's just rolling. But this is his favorite instance. Coco, it's a mouse. Get it. And, and he just drops it. I Tim love Allen when, the, so when the head goes back too. Yeah. Whatever, whatever it is that they used, because I, I don't. It I has don't, to be a doll. It has to well, be. Well, obviously a doll, but I was going to say, I don't think it was an animatronic. I used to have, uh, do you remember those when we were kids? They were, they were kittens, but they had like this, like rattle in them so that when they moved, it sounded like it was a purr. Kind of. But that's that's what Coco reminds me of when she's passed out. Well, that scene's great. It's hysterical. It holds up. Now we're back at Richard's house because now the Russian mob is coming for Richard and Michael. They find out where Richard lives and they get there. Now Michael arrives. He and Mimi Siku were outside and the mob is now in the house and they take Richard and his family captive. They tie Richard up. They have a knife to Richard's throat in a Disney film. They have a knife. To his hands. No, that's his thing. He cuts off the fingers. Oh, that's right. It, it's irrelevant. It's, He's still going to do it in front of his children. And the son gives up that dad keeps everything in the safe behind the Bible and this and this. Can I just point out, and it's bothered me since I was a kid. When they pull the books off the shelf and they get the documents, there's no safe. There is no safe that they have to open. There is not even a safe on that shelf. They just move a couple of books and here come the documents. I mean, I... You're right. There's not even like a hidden compartment. It. He just says, dad keeps everything behind Judith Krantz. And I, I guess they set it up for for the humor because then the the mob boss just picks the book up and he goes, I couldn't put this down. And then he flings it over his shoulder. It was hysterical. You know, it's it's funny. You got this big guy who appreciates, you know, literature and you wouldn't expect it. So I feel like they kind of just did that for the sight gag a little bit. Um, And they, they do try to play it off. Richard's saying, I, you would never expect me to keep documents like that in the house. And But I feel like if you have to crack into a safe now, this beat would have dragged out a little bit because they don't know. The Russian mob does not know that uh, Michael and Mimi are still there because they were on the other side of the house when they rolled up. Right. So now you have to have the two of them bust the family out. Yeah. And it's a quick scene The you know, the spider gets involved again. It's very funny. It's, it's quick. It's a little anticlimactic, but at the same time, what was, what would Michael and his 13-year-old son really going to do other than punch them and kick them and scare them away with the spider? I guess there's not much else you could have done with that. Well, it's not just the spider. It's also the blow darts, too. 
that have and that's where you know they get the comedy in this scene is that Michael misfires he shoots Richard's wife she's <laughs> down for the count Andrew the the Michael's uh, I'm sorry Richard's son touches one just pricks his finger and down he goes down he goes um but I like that the darts and the spider came back into play. They weren't just sight gags for the rest of the film that were used in one-off scenes. Like, the Matika kept coming back. It wasn't just the fight with the chief. The day where Mimi Siku goes off on his own, it traps Charlotte in the bathroom. Um, and the darts, it wasn't just funny when he shot himself and then shoots the cat. Now they're actually they're actually useful, and they do bring them back in one more time. So the... You know, we've talked about how good the balance is throughout this film, but it really is a testament to the screenwriting here that nothing was wasted. Everything always came back around. They they yeah. figured out a way to use everything and have it make sense. Yeah. And so the next scene that they have is a really sad goodbye when Mimi Siku tells Michael that he want I miss Palaku, I want to go home, I want to go back, I don't fit in here. So he takes him to the airport and it's it's a really sad scene because neither one of them really want Mimi Siku. Well, here's the thing. Mimi Siku wants to go home, but they don't really want to be separated. Well, see, I'm glad you bring this up because this was something that I only noticed on this viewing. When they leave Richard's house... He's obviously sad to be leaving his daughter, right. Richard's daughter, right. because her and Mimi have obviously formed this bond. They've kissed. They like each other. It's, you know, a childhood crush. So he's sad to be leaving, but it makes it sound like his stay is done and that Michael is going to bring Mimi right to the airport. And he says, hold on, we have one more stop to make. And then he takes him to see the Statue of Liberty. Right. And that's when Mimi starts with, I'm homesick. I failed the chief. I have to go back. So that is the one thing that I don't love. And I feel like it's a weaker point of the movie. It's set up like he was going to go home anyway. And then you start with the homesickness. I'm wondering if they shuffled some things around in post and they mix some scenes up. Not, not by mistake, but I'm wondering if they shuffled it around and just didn't catch it. Mm. because the tone is already like he's leaving. So the homesickness sort of comes out of nowhere. Right. Um, but I love the lighter. I love that Michael gets what you would see at like every New York souvenir stand. It's the Statue of Liberty and the and the torch lights. It's like the most chotchety thing you can get in New York. But he gives it to him and says, look, you know, the chief will see you got fire from the Statue of Liberty because that's part of why Mimi is so upset is he goes, the fire's not real. I failed the chief. There's no way of explaining that the fire is fake because the torch obviously is not lit if it's not Ghostbusters too. So there it is. I got it. Um, but I really like the scene and I like the gesture of giving him the, um, the satellite phone so that they can keep in touch. But I kind of feel like that's like, not a it's a it's a generous gift and it's heartwarming, but it's not well thought out because if Michael couldn't charge his laptop, where are they going to charge a satellite phone? Yeah, I was kind of thinking the same thing. Like, I know I'll sit here and say, you know, hey, sometimes you have to suspend your reality when watching a movie. But when a key plot point of the movie is that the laptop died because he couldn't charge it, you then cannot give him another electronic 
that you expect him to use to keep in touch with you because it can't be charged. If that laptop could have been charged, the entire the in, the entire drama of this movie is gone. Right. And I mean, here's the thing. For an otherwise brilliantly thought out film, I feel like the ending does kind of fall apart like I was talking about with the tone shift that is he homesick or is he sad to leave? Uh, or, you know, you bring up the cell phones or the, the satellite phone. It's not just that. I feel like there's no real ending to the way things are with Charlotte either. Because to me, she's shown her true colors about how she feels with Mimi. And Michael is clearly not happy in the relationship, the way that she's reacted to his son, who he has fallen in love with at this point. So I feel like, does Charlotte need to come up and no, not really, but we do see Michael still trying to put forth the effort with her and saying, hey, let's go on vacation. We'll really get away. And she's like, oh, that doesn't work for me. And it doesn't work for the director that's filming the series. And they just kind of leave it like that. Then you've got this other scene with Charlotte where she gives this whole speech of I'm an artist and you see how things how they you see things how they are. But I see the potential for what they could be, which really has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. If anything, you should see Mimi Siku in this relationship for what it should be, if that's your point of view. And she just storms off. And that's where I'm saying I'm wondering if there was a rewrite or a reshuffle in these last couple of scenes, because I feel like we don't really tie up a lot of loose ends. And then, like you were saying with the phones, that's just kind of weak sauce. Yeah, I, I mean, the movie's an hour and 45 minutes long. I'm wondering if the movie had a running time closer to two hours, but they found it to be boring for kids or like a, a kid would lose their attention, you know, before the end of the movie. Yeah, it feels like there is something that ended up on the cutting room floor. Or I feel like it was, okay, let's just jam a couple things in there for passage of time so that we can then get Michael and Richard and his family to go visit. Yeah, because then they're kind of just there. Right. And you don't know how long it's been since Mimi Siku left New York. You just know that they're all there now. I would have honestly rather seen the wedding play out. Right. And maybe it did. I don't know. That's the thing. I don't know. And we're never really going to know. Yeah, because it, it feels like his relationship with Charlotte is coming to an end. That would have been more final if Charlotte agreed to make room in her life for Mimi. And then he is at the wedding. Yeah. All right. Do you want to talk about these characters here? For sure. All right. Tim Allen plays Michael Cromwell. It's it's a great character and he's perfectly cast. I've never seen Tim Allen in anything where I have thought other than this man was perfectly cast in this role. He's just so Tim Allen, but not in a way that feels stale. It doesn't feel like every other thing that he's ever done. Yeah. I mean, you do get very similar to the Santa Claus in that he's reluctant to step up and take on this role. But once he decides to do it, it it's two completely different things. I mean, obviously you're Santa in one of them, but I don't feel like I watched the same film twice. Yeah. Sam Huntington plays Mimi Siku. It was one of his first films. Um, and he's had sort of an interesting career where, I th honestly, I thought he was really good in this. And then he goes and he does movies like 
Detroit Rock City and Fanboys. And then he was on the Caveman show. There was once upon a time where ABC had a show based on the Geico Cavemen. It's a, you know, shocker, it didn't last. Um, I wish we'd see more of him because he was just so good in this film. And I kind of wish that we did see more of him. I don't think that he gets nearly enough credit for being the talented actor that he is. And I think part of that maybe can be attributed to some of the roles that he's taken since. But this film in the opening credits says introducing Sam Huntington. So for your first time out, you know, he's playing a 13 year old. He might not have been 13, maybe a little bit older when he did this. But the fact that you're running around in a teeny tiny loincloth just to be willing to put yourself out there like that your first time around, he deserves so much credit, but even just truly grasping this character, he gives Mimi such a childlike innocence, but at the same time, you do have that stubborn adolescent because in my village, I'm a man. Uh, and he does that without giving him an ego and just the, the way that they handled him having an accent, you know, I think that they did. They handled that really delicately with him not sounding like he was dumbing down the character and, and doing it in such a way that was insulting to anyone. Yeah. I, I think he's just brilliant and does not get enough credit for this role. For sure. Martin Short plays Richard Kempster. Um, and Martin Short is just really good here. I thought, I, as a kid, I remember not really liking Richard. I didn't because I and I liked Martin Short. I just didn't like the character. Now that I'm rewatching it as an adult, I kind of understand like there's no movie without him doing what he does. But I think I appreciate Martin Short now in this film more as an adult than I did as a kid. Yeah, I think as a kid, you're you're kind of writing him off as being a weaker character. But now I appreciate him more for being so tightly wound because then once he does make the deal without Michael, he goes to the restaurant where him and Charlotte are having lunch. He starts stress eating, uh, you know, then in his own home, he can't even find sanctuary because Mimi Siku is wreaking havoc there and, and he's just completely coming undone uh and i think martin short pulls it off brilliantly and i i just love him opposite tim allen like do more things together keep doing them not another santa claus movie no but do something else well they're doing well we'll probably get to that in in our news of the week yeah let's put a pin in that lolita davidovic plays charlotte i said it before charlotte is just a trope but it's nothing against Lolita Davidovic. Um, I think she played the character that she was supposed to play. I think the character works for the movie, but I think the character is also what dates the movie. I would agree with that. She didn't do a bad job. She just did what the 90s asked her to do. I feel like to this day, I have never seen her face just because she is so much bang. So much what? Bang. Like bangs your hair? Oh, okay. So, I feel like so. I don't have. I haven't had bangs since '99, so I, I I don't remember what they're like. No one has, but I'm saying her hair is so feathered it blocks her eyes, and I I just feel like 
I, I rarely say this because I don't want to be critical, but like she doesn't wear a lot of eye makeup. So I feel like her face just totally gets lost. Yeah, that makes sense. Again, very much the hairstyle of the time. And maybe it's supposed to. Maybe the idea is that you are supposed to be focused on her clothes because she's in fashion. Perhaps. David Ogden Steers plays Alexi Janovic, our villain in the film. David Ogden Steers is just one of those characters. He's one of those actors. You loved him in everything that he that he was ever in. Um, his comedic timing was perfect. And I did like him in this film. As ridiculous as the role is, I did like him in this film. Same. Uh, he's he's a great villain. The comedic timing is great. One of the the it's crazy. It sticks with me and I, I think it holds. One of my favorite lines is when he goes, thank you, Andrew. Just yeah. the way that he addresses the kid. I, I just love his delivery. And uh, one more. Karen is played by Lily Sobieski. Her first film too, I believe. Yeah, she went on to do a lot. She's not really, I don't think she's acting anymore, but she did have a run where she was nominated for Golden Globes and Emmy Awards. You know, she she's a very accomplished actress and came from humble beginnings. She was, I believe, on the same trajectory as Natalie Portman. And then she was like, no, nah, I don't want to do this anymore. Because even Natalie Portman took a break for college, but right. she came right back. Lily Sobieski... Um, she looks just like Helen Hunt. There's another Twister reference for you. Um, she was in that thriller, The Glass House. I remember that. She was like a teenager in that. And then didn't she do that movie with like Josh Hartnett or something? Joyride. I, yes. Uh, no, but she she had like a bunch of 90s hits and nothing. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's it. She's... I guess I think she's retired now. I, I think she literally has just hung it up and she's done with the industry. But this is what I remember her most for, because yeah. anytime I saw her in anything after this, I was like, oh, it's a Kume from Jungle to Jungle. All right. I want to, before we move on, though, give an yeah. honorable mention yes. to Andrew, because that kid was a scene stealer. He should have just been a tropey brother, but... For as few lines as he has, he steals every scene for me. Yeah, he was really funny. Okay, final thoughts. Still slaps. That That's really all I have to say. Um, the ending to me is a little bit of a disappointment with adult eyes, but the entire rest of the film... I not only appreciate it as much as I did when I was a kid, I definitely still appreciate this humor, uh, but I love all of the new things that I'm finding as I watch it again now. Yeah, I the movie's not winning any Oscars, okay? Let's just <laughs> call it what it is. Um, but it was critically panned when it came out. It's still panned on Rotten Tomatoes. It is, but I don't think the movie is as bad bad as people make it out to be now perhaps there's a bias because i'm watching this as an adult but i still kind of see it through the eyes of being 11 years old and that's the target demographic but for all the reasons that we mentioned i mean there's there is plenty of ridiculousness in the movie and i, I mean the movie is very much a product of its time but i do think it gets better with age i do think that it is a movie that somebody can enjoy whether they're 5 or 45. I think the family can sit and watch this movie 
and I don't think that it. I mean, I'm not surprised it has the reviews that it does. Siskel and Ebert are never going to say they love this movie. I don't expect them to. But I don't think the movie deserves quite as harsh a criticism as it had gotten at the time and continues to get today. I think if you're just looking for something fun and lighthearted, you just want to laugh and kind of turn your brain off a little bit and just have fun with a movie... This is one that I would definitely suggest watching. And if you haven't seen it in a long time, I think it's worth a rewatch. I was going to say, if you made your way through the 90s, if you're a 90s kid and you haven't seen it yet, you got to go back for it. For sure. And we want to know what you have to say about Jungle to Jungle. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. Hey, everyone. This is Brian down here in South Florida. I'm about two hours south of Disney. And when it comes to planning vacations, Jackie's the way to go. I have a quick story for you. When it came to booking my family vacation for my two-year-old daughter and my wife, You know, like everybody, I immediately went to the internet, started scouting prices, compiling lists, and uh, building my perfect vacation at Disney. Just out of curiosity, I reached out to Jackie. She mentioned she was uh, booking vacations for many people. So I gave her my uh, list, my itinerary. She looked it over, and when she came back to me, she gave me her recommendations in regards to the parks. However, she also had new pricing associated with it. Um, I've learned that going on my own doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be getting the best pricing. Jackie was able to beat the majority of the pricing within my list and saving me a ton of money, but she has the insight and the connections to do so. On top of that, it was stress-free, so all my vacations in the future are going to be through her because I don't have to think about it. She plans it. I give her some information in regards to what I want to do, what my plans are for that week when I go visit Disney, and she'll make it happen and create the itinerary for me. She's a market expert. Myself, I go into a park, I immediately hop on the next line, I get a few fast passes, and at the end of the day, I don't accomplish everything like I would want to. She advised on which rides to attack first, which restaurants I should schedule on what day, and how to properly allocate my time to maximize my vacation. It was an amazing process. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Way to go, Monoreal. Keep it going. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L, E-Z-Z-I at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. If you are looking for that Disney-inspired art print, stationery, greeting cards, apparel, or home decor, Kelly has what you're looking for. Plus, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Be sure to see everything that she has over at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. So news this week talking about Tim Allen. We are getting more of the Santa Claus. Confirmed for Disney+. Plus. It's going to be a series, so it's going to be a television show starring and produced by Tim Allen. I'm glad it's finally confirmed because I feel like this has been circulating the rumor mill for quite a while. And I know with Last Man Standing, Tim Allen was not in, you know, Disney's good graces all the time. And they weren't in his either. Yeah. So I'm glad, much like ScarJo, they kissed and made up and that we are getting this. What do you think of the format, though? That they're doing it as a television show as opposed to a film? Yeah. I don't think you need another movie. I agree. Um, I'm. Here's the thing. I'm. 
I'm excited to see Tim Allen as Santa Claus again. Um, and I think that's why I'm excited for it. I like I, the movies as the the first one is a classic. The first one is timeless. The second one was fine. The third really wasn't very good at all. Um, I I approach this with cautious optimism. Um, I think is you know short form content when you think about half hour episodes versus you know a two hour movie. I think you can have a lot of fun with it. But I feel like if you don't get the entire cast back, then what's the point? That's the quite like, I'm not sure what story you could tell. Like, is Charlie going to become Santa Claus now? Like, I, I just, we don't know much about it. So I'm cautiously optimistic. See, and that's why, though, I am happy that they're not doing another movie. I agree with you. I don't think that we need one. But in the three films, the whole premise is that he feels caught between both worlds. You know, in the second one especially. First one, he's got to learn learn the ropes and figure out how to just navigate this. And we do see it affecting his everyday life because no one believes him. Right. Second one, now Charlie's acting out. He's got to figure out how to be a parent and how to do his job and get married. Or no, the third one. Yeah, the third one, he's getting married. And that's the time travel one. Right. Um, so I certainly don't think that we need to keep revisiting that and being caught between both worlds. I also think it works better as a series because I have said it is the best depiction of the North Pole we've ever seen. I'm interested to see what they do with that and see more sets and more storylines from within the North Pole. And with all of that being said, if David Cromholtz is not in it as Bernard, I don't want it. Yeah, if he's not in it at the very least, then you've missed. Production is underway on season three of High School Musical, the musical, the series, talking about Disney Plus shows. And this is interesting because the premise of this third season is that they are uh, they're at summer residents at Camp Shallow Lake and they're doing a production of Frozen. Uh, this feels very meta. Yeah. So they're going to have music from Frozen as well as music from Camp Rock and High School Musical. It's... I don't if you're doing Frozen, why are we hearing music from Camp Rock? Well, because it's a summer camp movie. To me, this just sounds like it has all the makings for disaster like High School Musical 2. It, it just seems like they're trying to throw too much at it. I mean, I get it. How many seasons are you going to do where they are in school? You have to sort of shake things up a little bit because then then it becomes like Glee. Yeah, but it would be okay if it was like Glee. Why can't it just be like Glee? Why can't it be Disney's Glee? Because Glee ran out of storylines very quickly. Well, here's the thing, though. Glee ran out of storylines because Glee was... And I didn't watch it much, whether you can believe that or not. Um, Glee... And, and I'm not saying that it was I'm not saying this in a bad way, because I think a lot of what they did actually was very good. 
they focused on a lot of social commentary on Glee, where the fact that they were high school, sco- high school students in a Glee club became secondary. In High School Musical, it's always been about the musical. So you could technically have them going through their trials and tribulations with putting on a new production every year. It could be like High School Musical meets the Muppets, where we have to put on the show. And you can bring in every couple of seasons, because, you know, kids are going to graduate, and if the character is really dislikable, or if you can't come to contract terms, they can just transfer to another school. (laughs) (laughs) Movie magic. Um, You could just keep bringing in a new cast, tell new stories, do new musicals, and kind of weave in and out that coming of age there's a way that you could do it where it doesn't have to be glee i like your other idea better high school musical the musical of muppets i'm sure it's i i'm waiting for that day if the muppets remake everything i'm waiting for that day where they do high school musical Menomina. all right um it's also the start of award season and two films in particular early on at least are cleaning up the Art Directors Guild Awards announced their nominees for Best Animated Feature Film. Surprise, surprise. Both Raya and Encanto got nominated. We love Raya. And I am so rooting for Raya, but I, I hate to say this. I don't think it stands a chance against the phenomenon that has become Encanto. I think both films are incredible. I think the animation in both are incredible. I think the stories in both are incredible. But I think there is something to be said, whether fair or not, about the mania. And right now, we're seeing a mania with Encanto that we haven't seen since Frozen. And honestly, I think... If you saw our monoreel in a minute, and we're going to review Encanto eventually, probably sooner rather than later, I th- I love Encanto. I wish it had Coco's music. I I do like the music of Encanto, but from a from a first track to last track soundtrack, I think the music in Coco is better. Um, but I feel like this is taking on a life that even Coco didn't take on. I think that's because, I mean, you have a huge cast, right? But this film delivers it in such a way where there is something for every one, regardless of age, gender. There is something for every person to latch onto that is relatable. Right. And for Raya, you've got a lot of great characters in that film, but I, I feel like... Raya is the best one. The lead is the best one. Whereas in Encanto, I love Mirabelle, but I love all of them. I think maybe the characters in Raya, as as a whole cast, not not as like just the lead or just the secondary characters. I think when you think about them as a as a total film, I think the characters in Raya. I think the waters run a little deeper with them yes. than they do in Encanto. But the Encanto phenomenon, I do think, is going to push... I think it's going to push a lot of awards on it. I'm not saying it doesn't deserve it, 
But I think if Encanto came out next year, or if it had come out last year, I think Raya would run away with all of these categories. I would agree with that. Like, it's almost not fair because Encanto is a musical, and that's also part of where it's taken it and run with it. Yeah. Uh, the MPSE Golden Reel Awards, um, they both nominated Encanto and Raya for Outstanding Achievement in Sound Editing. Totally makes sense. Actually, I think if there's somewhere where Raya is going to win, I actually it think sounds, it's going to be sound. Yeah. Um, and then the, because of all the martial arts, like, and see, that's where you can't really compete because right. even though there's no music, it's so different. But they did it so well. And then the Cine, uh, Cinema Audio Society Awards nominated both of them for uh, Best Motion Picture Animated. So, I mean. <sighs> If either one of them win, it's it's a win for Disney, and both are so deserving. Um, and I, I don't I don't want to say Encanto doesn't deserve it; it does. I just don't know that I'm gonna necessarily give it an award over Raya. But but to your point, the movies are so different. They're not even other than being animated; they're not even in the same genre of film. Right. It, it's it's almost impossible to pick one over the other. No, you really can't. And that's my hope for Raya is that that doesn't get get written off as, oh, it's this non-musical version uh, because it's not. It, they're, they're not the same at all. But I think because they both have strong female leads and they came out the same year, I feel like people are going to lump them in as the same movie and, and not give Raya the same time of day. But we did review it. You can go back and listen to our review. Uh, we'll link it in the show notes. Uh, one more piece of news this week. I don't know if you saw today, but there are still tickets available for the D23 Expo. And I thought that that was kind of interesting because they are usually sold out by now. I feel like they released more tickets because... My understanding was that they did sell out when when they had their initial on-sale date. But it's like Run Disney. Run Disney sells out, and then a month later, oh, look, we found more bibs. You didn't find anything. You just uh, you held them. It's just a surprise that, that they would release them now, that, that they didn't hold on to those D23 tickets. And... I mean, perhaps they cut the sales off prematurely because they're trying to boost interest in it and hoping that on a re-release, they they sell more. I mean, I don't know. I I I was under the impression that they sold it out, but I mean, I've I'll put it to you this way: I've never heard of tickets being made public after they're sold out. That's interesting. I mean. I used to work in concert venues, so I can tell you that there is always a little bit of a reserve. And if the artist doesn't use all their comps, we would release them and we would sell them. It, you know, it is it a hundred tickets? No, but they they get a certain amount of them, and then you can release them to the public if they're unused. So maybe that was the case here, but like you usually withhold that for, you know, I would think August, being that the event is in September. Um, because I don't think that this has anything to do with, you know, people being hesitant to travel because this is way far off. You know, like it, it's the middle of a or the very beginning of award season. You're seeing all these ceremonies being pushed back or, or hybrid versions of them already. So I don't think it's that. Um, 
But I'm just, I was just curious because you and I had plans to go. We've never been to a D23. We were dying to go. Uh, full disclosure, we were even looking into being a vendor there. Yeah. Uh, and we're sort of on the fence about it now because we feel that a lot of what makes D20, the, the expo ex- exciting is the announcements. And being that Disney has not been able to deliver on everything that they announced at the last expo, and that's not their fault. I'm For once, I'm not pointing a finger here. Um, the question becomes, what could they possibly announce? And what could we possibly get excited about? Because Disney has a history of announcing things and then they don't happen until years later. Like we, we were talking about this last week. Is Universal's going to get an entire park done in the, in the time it took to get Tron ready. Yeah. So I don't know that I want to get hyped up for things that are not going to happen in the near future. Yeah. Um, there's a few reasons why. Um we are on the fence about our D23 travel. Um, that's a big chunk of it. Another chunk of it, you're going to have to wait just a little while longer before you find out. But I promise you, because we've been teasing this for a while, you're going to find out very, very soon. So I'm just going to leave it there. But yeah, in any case, it was interesting um, to see that more tickets were released. I mean, oh, a week after they went on sale. Usually it's not that close to the initial on sale date. But um, look, hey, listen, you know, we have something really special for you guys this week. Um, We're really excited. We have another giveaway coming up. It's going to be a monorail radio T-shirt as well as a straw charm from our friends over at the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Now, it's so easy for you to enter to win the contest. Just make sure that you are following us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and we will put a... Uh, we will put it out on social media that we are doing the contest. Make sure you're liking the social media. Like the post and tag a friend. Like the post and tag a friend. That's all you have to do to be entered to win our prize pack. And I think we'll run this until... Yeah, let's run this until... Monday, February 7th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So we're going to give this one a little bit more time to breathe. But uh, just make sure that you are following that social media and that you have it done by then. Anybody that is entered to win, uh, of course, will be in the drawing. And we will announce it on the show that gets released on Tuesday, February the 8th. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monorail Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. I've already mentioned that social media. We are on TikTok as well at Monorail Radio. If you want to email us, you can at monorailradio at gmail.com. And for links to everything, the home is always going to be online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monorail Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.